what we do on uh, grid modernization, um, you know, energy transition, you know, just has a very direct relationship to how damaging the crypto mining activities are. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm here to peel back the lessons, ideas, and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. On the show today is crypto. If, for some reason, you are not familiar with crypto, crypto coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, DAOs, etc., fear not. Neither was I until I went off the deep end researching all of the above for this episode. To bring everyone up to speed in case you are unfamiliar, crypto coins, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, are created when a computer wins a lottery, a lottery that is based on computational power, and that power is created from electricity, and sometimes the electricity is made from very clean resources, like hydro, and sometimes it's made from very dirty sources, like coal. This episode, featuring Jonathan Rakoff, former EPA lawyer and ESG sustainability leader at Coinbase, covers the intersection of climate and crypto and dives into the question of, is crypto bad for the environment? Jonathan Rakoff is a rising sustainability leader and former Obama White House and US EPA senior lawyer with over 20 years of experience and a deep background in federal regulation policy and process. Whether as a GC, general counsel, of a biotech startup or a law firm partner, Jonathan brings a long track record of advising innovative tech companies on a diverse array of topics. From greenhouse gas emissions management to ESG disclosure to government investigations and enforcement. Recently, he finished a six-month in-house engagement with Coinbase, where he explored the poorly understood intersection of climate policy and crypto. As he says, a rich topic on which he continues to advise clients across the here-to-stay crypto economy. Before we get started, we go into a bit of depth on this episode, including in carbon counting. Jonathan discusses a number of software providers, including Persephone, where for full disclosure, I work. Fear not, we discuss way more than just crypto carbon accounting, but it is a fun topic. With that, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Excited to have you. Let's start with your climate origin story. So you have had a long career and climate has been a big part of it. But when did you first start thinking about it? You know, in perusing the Internet, I found a few things uh, that I'll just mention here. One, you were part of uh, you had the Minneapolis Foundation Community Grant for rural land use in China. That was, I think, 1995. And then at Stanford, uh, when you're doing your law degree, you were all part of the Environmental Law Journal team as well. So uh, I think those will kind of maybe give us some ideas starting from, but I'd love to hear, when did you first start thinking about climate? I studied sort of land use and, and, uh, and ecology issues in, uh, in undergrad, spent uh, a term in, uh, in China, in uh, Yunnan province, learning about land use, waste management, you know, studied uh, environmental ethics, but you know, honestly, didn't didn't pursue uh, environmental issues for uh, many years uh, until uh, 2010, when I uh, found myself at the Obama White House, working at uh, at OMB, dealing with environmental regulation, uh, and then after that at EPA, uh, defending the uh, environmental uh, and climate agenda against congressional oversight, and you know, so that's what kicked it off. You mentioned. When you went to go join, uh, or when you went for to join the Obama administration, was that like a 
purposeful career pivot or was like a great opportunity that was kind of a compilation of your already existing skill sets and your interests? On the career move, it was it was very much um, opportunistic. In fact, pretty much every move in my career has been less planned and more organic. Right after undergrad, I actually spent a lot of time in studying health policy issues, not environmental questions. And I uh, did so by joining the Department of Clinical Bioethics at the NIH as uh, Zeke Emanuel's uh, sort of second fellow. Um, and eventually, years years later, he, he found his way uh, to the Office of Management and Budget. And, um, you know, Zeke had a big influence on me, helped me decide to go to law school. Um, uh, you know, gave me a sense of how uh, sort of to balance idealism with sort of practical impact. And, you know, it seemed exciting to work with him again. And, um, uh, and I went to OMB, uh, you know, to do that. Uh, but as sometimes happens, you know, security checks can take a while. And by the time I finally sort of showed up on the ground, a lot of the uh, sort of health policy work that I thought I might do uh, had been done. And, uh, you know, so I ended up getting a much broader portfolio than I expected. It included uh, so the EPA uh, and climate action agendas. I promise to the listeners that we are eventually going to talk about the intersection of climate and crypto, but Zeke Emanuel is too much of a, <laughs> uh, of a Pandora's box not to dive into. Zeke Emanuel of I will not take healthcare uh, after 75 fame, correct? He did say that, yeah. Um, I believe he's now 75. So I don't know if you guys are still in touch. Um, and the, for reference, I'm, I'm talking about this piece he wrote in the article that was uh, in the article he wrote in the Atlantic that got a lot of press that I personally thought was really well done. And as like a follow on, if people haven't read Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, I wonder if you had any interaction with him as well. One of my favorite authors kind of like parlays into a similar idea. Like what are the... How do we be intentional to use a millennial word or a Gen Z word about our healthcare uh, costs and applications uh, as we get older? Yeah, no, he it was definitely one of the one of the great influences of my career, um, and not in the uh, either of the subject matter areas that we're talking about today. But if Zeke is seventy five, then you know that's the subject of some serious roasting that someone has to um, subject him to. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought he might be a little bit younger than that. Um, you know. Ooh, when I met him, I was, um, you know, uh, about a year out of college, full of uh, sort of intellectual interest and, uh, you know, on a lot of fire, didn't exactly know how to direct them. You know, what you see uh, when you watch Zeke closely is someone with sort of immense uh, sort of horsepower, intellectual horsepower, but also an eye towards having a practical impact. And he's not afraid as that uh, won't take healthcare after 75 article approved you know, to throw, you know, some bombs into the space and see um, how they land, right? Um, you know, I, I respect Zeke and respected him then for not always analyzing things to death, not waiting forever to see whether uh, his ideas might have some purchase, you know, and, and he you know, basically taught me uh, to be, I think his exact words at one point was, were, you know, uh, if you're not sure, just, you know, sort of be a junkyard dog about it, sort of push hard and see, uh, and see what you get, and that's that's advice that's useful. I think now in the climate space, especially in the in the uh, in the crypto climate domain, where there's a, you know, as we'll probably talk about, um, a lot more data is is needed to truly understand the uh, environmental impacts of crypto and, and uh, you know sort of formulate policy solutions to those problems. Um, but if we wait for the data, then we'll never get anything done, right? And so the specific line he said was 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 what again? If I remember correctly, um, his advice to me was something like, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very smart, uh, but 
you know, he didn't uh, sort of bring me on to be a shrinking violet. He'd rather me be a junkyard dog. That's how you, you know, sort of bring issues out, right? In other words, be, um, don't just be smart, be sort of intellectually assertive, um, unpack issues, uh, you know, don't be afraid to be wrong. Uh, and, you know, that's that's been, uh, among others, one of the uh, sort of very helpful guideposts for my career. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, two things that are relevant to crypto, both not being afraid to be wrong and true. And uh, the intersection of crypto and climate is definitely a bomb in the space, dropping bombs. So why don't we start there talking a little bit about it? I think uh, people are here to listen. So for context, you previously led sustainability ESG at Coinbase. How did that, you know, we talked about um, organic opportunities. How did that opportunity come to be? And then I think from there, I'd love to unpack, like, what were the resources that you used to build up your foundational knowledge so you could take that intellectual horsepower and then apply it to the space sure um this is a much more interesting topic than you know my sort of winding uh an unplanned origin story you know I, that's precisely uh, how i came to coinbase in a you know sort of unplanned way it's a coinbase so it's sort of backing up a little bit i left uh the department of clinical, Bio- clinical bioethics at the nih um you know where i thought i went to law school at stanford i thought i might uh, stay in health policy, but you know, it just turned out that I had lots of interests, including uh, environmental questions, tech policy questions outside of uh, the health space. And you know, the um, the most compelling uh, way to be a lawyer seems to be a litigator, right? You're subject matter agnostic. Uh, you know, if you're a good writer, you can have uh, influence on lots of exciting issues. Um, you know, uh, and you don't have to decide, right? And so I went and spent the next something like seven years, eight years. Uh, clerking for judges, um, uh, working at big law firms, uh, both on the trial level and uh, on the appellate level. And eventually, I, I made my way to OMB, I was, uh, was counsel to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Uh, that was my main portfolio area. Uh, and one of the largest components of that was uh, the EPA portfolio. We um, uh, shepherded through, um, I think, over 300 uh, significant rulemakings. Um, but another component was the financial regulatory reform agenda, right? And so I had, well, I at the time didn't seem, it wasn't as interested in that. Um, you know, I, my team, I, we had a, um, a brilliant detailee from the State Department named Hermine Wong uh, join us. Uh, she and I uh, worked together on a lot of uh, sort of fun rules. Um, she ended up uh, leaving uh, OMB to go uh, to the SEC, if I'm remembering her resume correctly. Um, she had come from state, went to SEC. I went to, uh, to EPA. We sort of lost track of one another. But um, sort of fast forward, after the Obama administration, I uh, moved to Seattle, joined uh, a uh, environmental and energy uh, boutique and started representing tech companies uh, on range of sort of government controversies and regulatory issues. But you know, um, uh, an increasing overtime share of ESG and sustainability uh, sort of questions were, you know, on my client's mind. Um, turns out that Hermine had gone, uh, unbeknownst to me, to, uh, to Coinbase, uh, quickly rising uh, up through the ranks. Uh, and at the height of the pandemic, when um, everyone was remote and it was possible to call on people all over the country, uh, you know, knowing that I was unlikely to be leaving Seattle, she uh, sort of invited me to uh, to come on board. I represented them for a while um, uh, as a sort of normal outside counsel. But when they went public, I think the notion was uh, we'll stand up a policy shop and we'll need to build out 
uh, at least some uh, sort of exploratory infrastructure for what a sustainability program might look like. Um, this is very common for uh, for companies that I seconded to Coinbase. I, you know, this is the way that many companies uh, sort of want to proceed when they're uh, when they're new to the space. Um, you know, if, uh, newly public companies, as some of you and your listeners may know, um, it's very uncommon for them to launch uh, ESG or uh, sustainability or climate programs immediately if they don't already have them, right? There's uh, there's actually some data um, that White and Case has put out. I, I can't remember the precise sort of average duration before program launch, but you know it's it's over a year, um, sometimes more, um, before you start seeing a lot of action. And um, and that would have been the uh, the advice uh, I think that I would have given, and and probably the advice of of most lawyers. But of course, that also uh, we're at a time when ESG is exploding. Right, and the IPCC report suggests that you know the the world has a fever and is about to die, and you know bad, bad, bad. Right, and so uh, I think that uh, you sort of focus the climate issue in everyone's mind. Um, and then on top of that, uh, you know the New York Times is reporting you know what's what felt like every other week uh, that crypto was you know the kind of hair that breaks the campus back of global climate action. Right, I mean it's just all bad. Right, um, and so the. Uh, the the remit for me was uh, to explore those issues and uh, you know and offer the uh, you know, offer the company some options you know as uh, sort of the mixed blessing of a uh, of a lawyer even one who is uh, sort of detailed in house uh, you'll often uh, you sort of end up wrapping up uh, you know and, and sort of passing the baton to others um, you know in exchange for your uh, your paycheck and and you know they'll launch what they launch when they launch it, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll sort of cheer on the sidelines, but uh, it was a, uh, an opportunity to dig into sort of one of the most exciting new uh, technology areas, uh, crypto was exploding um, at precisely the same time that, you know, the sort of climate and ESG issue awareness was also exploding. Like that convergence was really, really exciting for me. I mentioned earlier that you know, back in college when I was sort of studying environmental ethics, it seemed unlikely, no matter how um, urgent the calls were, uh, that anyone would really take them seriously outside the sort of green community because the the impacts um, were always out into the future. Well, you know, uh, as you know, because you also uh, live up in in this region, when when the um, sort of Pacific Northwest has 120 degree days, then you know you have to worry. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I think it was summer 2021. Uh, you went outside and it was like a sauna. And most, I think like 60% of Seattle homes don't have air conditioning because they didn't need it. And uh, that is quickly changing. Hopefully they're doing it with heat pumps and um, not uh, the other means of, of powering their homes. Um, one of the things I think is going to be great for listeners to learn um, is not only your specific way of building up your knowledge around crypto and the intersection of crypto and climate, but also you have the lens of, I think, uh, of a litigator, which, as you mentioned, it's kind of your job to be agnostic to the industry, but to be able to build a level of expertise that others don't have. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your process 
in particular, who you were reading, um, what was the media that you were following? Was it like blogs, podcasts, books? Um, because climate and climate science, while it's not new, there's not necessarily lots of it, right? Like you can't dig uh, into the, the history of crypto and especially the intersection of climate, um, you know, maybe more than 10 years, probably less than five, more than likely less than two, right? So I'd love to hear that journey uh, and, and how you achieved, how you built up that seminal knowledge you needed in order to, to achieve your goals. Sure. In a way, um, just like when I was working on uh, bioethics matters uh, in the late 90s, you know, you almost do better uh, if your career has been this uh, kind of patchwork. You're, you know, my career, certainly, I'm, I'm sort of like a Frankenstein monster of, you know, um, different competencies and experiences. Uh, and, you know, that probably means that in any one domain, I'll always be lagging, but the advantage is that you learn to be nimble, right? And that, of course, is what uh, most litigators like to think of themselves uh, as being. I, I haven't stood in court in, in, sort of in many years, um, but I also haven't done the same kind of work uh, for more than a sort of few months, uh, I think, since the very beginning of my career, right? You know, each project requires you to uh, you sort of open yourself up and dive in. You know, in, in all candor, I was a lot more worried about crypto. Um, you're exactly right. You know, uh, the climate space is full of uh, complexity and it's, it's sort of only becoming more complex. But I had a pretty good grounding from my time at EPA. Uh, I understood um, climate change regulatory policy. You know, I was working, uh, uh, doing some really exciting work uh, on um, uh, green tech and uh, you know, climate tech and sustainability, you know, at my Seattle area. Uh, environmental uh, law boutique, it, uh, Martin Law. I mean, they, they just were for the for a relatively small shop, uh, really at the cutting edge. But I hadn't done a lot of crypto work. And, you know, for someone who thinks of himself as capable of getting up to speed quickly, you know, this area can be extremely technically complex. And, you know, the only uh, strategy I, I really um, was able to employ effectively is, you know, just a, you know, kind of shameless willingness uh, to ask ridiculous questions to people who um, thought that, you know, I must have an IQ of seven in order to uh, not already know the answer, right? So, you know, there are actually a lot of resources. Every crypto company has um, published a white paper. Um, you know, there's the uh, kind of seminal uh, Satoshi white paper describing just how blockchain Bitcoin works. Um, you know, you can go as as deep as you want to go. And sort of most people that I know, um, kind of lawyers, business people, um, people who don't code, uh, only go just deep enough to be able to um, understand what the tech folks are saying. I, I like to try to go a bit deeper, but I quickly found that that was not as, as sort of helpful. If I wasn't actually learning to code, then, uh, you know, I could, uh, I could learn the basics and then shift you know, to the details and um, ins and outs of GHG emissions management, which is also sort of a uh, relatively new space. You know, when I was at EPA uh, and, and at the White House, um, there's a lots of policy attention to, uh, to the Clean Power Plan, how to uh, kind of drive renewables, uh, sort of tech forcing grants, uh, you know, worked on the CAFE standards. This is, you know, just emissions management is entirely different. It's, a, it's not really a legal domain. It's not, um, in many respects, even a policy one. It's a, you know, it, it's a kind of math uh, and operational exercise, right? And so I basically interviewed a ton of vendors. You know, in many cases, there were some sort of hot shots at those vendors who 
wanted to know about my career. And, uh, you know, it was just a, you know, sort of very um, um, productive symbiosis, right? And you can't hire everyone, but um, I forged relationships with many, uh, you know, uh, really smart people at those, uh, you know, at those shops and, you know, uh, somehow persuaded them to, to tour me and get me up to speed. And when we say shops, who are we, what kind of companies are we referring so to like, or organizations? Like Watershed or Patch, uh, Aspiration, Persephone, uh, you know, they're, they're all, you know, this proliferation of really cool companies uh, seeking to, you know, provide either software or consulting services to help, uh, you know, both major corporates and uh, sometimes uh uh, you know, municipalities and, and um, national governments uh, assess their uh, emissions profiles. What, what's your carbon footprint under the GHG protocol, right? And, you know, in a lot of instances, you know, as you know very well, there are businesses or um, industry areas that have complexities not anticipated by the GHG protocol. And crypto arguably was one of those. Um, you know, we have some really interesting um, analysis and, and, and guidance docs that, you know, sort of independent orgs have put out to try to help solve for that. But, you know, back when I first started um, working with Coinbase in, in um, you know, sort of early 2021, that stuff, at least, I, either it didn't exist or I didn't know where it was. Yeah, 100%. It's amazing how quickly this space has grown. And I think it's a combination of the importance of both crypto and the climate space. What were those basic concepts? So you mentioned that, you know, other people tend to try and learn the basics. You like to go deeper. If, if you could summarize what those basic concepts of crypto specifically related to the intersection of uh, sustainability and environment were, um, what would you say that those are? So um, I actually don't even think you need to go that that deep necessarily to understand the, you know, um, so what I would take to be the um, sort of the threshold issue is understanding how the different um, uh, crypto consensus protocols work at a at a high altitude, right? So, you know, as I think now most people know, but um, you know, again, certainly when I first started working on these sorts of issues uh, with Ramin Wong at uh, at Coinbase, uh, most of my environmental uh, and legal colleagues um, did not know that you know the different consensus protocols you know, have very different uh, environment impact, very environmental impacts and energy requirements. And so the, the most famous and the original is a proof of work, uh, what's known as a proof of work protocol. Uh, this is how Bitcoin, uh, the, the dominant uh, and you know, sort of most popular uh, crypto asset uh, is mined. So basically the, the theory is that um, we're going to get individuals with computers will uh, will solve these extraordinarily complicated math problems. Uh, and the fact that they go through all of that uh, sort of effort and hard work and expense uh, will, um, uh, you know, without getting more detailed about it, serve to validate transactions on the blockchain. So you'll, um, you'll have sort of confidence that they are uh, not fraudulent, transparent. And, you know, a, a feature of the Bitcoin network and a proof of work networks is that you have uh, at least the Bitcoin network has a sort of finite number of Bitcoins that will ever be mined, and the uh, the difficulty of uh, of mining those Bitcoins increases. The complexity of the math problem, how much energy it takes to solve for it, will increase over time as fewer Bitcoins are left and the price of of uh, the Bitcoins uh, that are left rises. It's it's basically the more people are trying to mine, uh, the harder it gets to mine because the the sort of protocol requires that only a fixed number be minted uh, in a fixed time. And, you know, it, it creates tremendous 
um, security for the network. It also has um, huge energy costs. Um, put proof of work and Bitcoin aside, um, there are other consensus protocols um, that uh, proof of stake, proof of authority, um, probably many more that I'm not uh, as familiar with, uh, they don't require that uh, compute power and energy intensity. Um, and you know, in many instances, uh, those networks can produce uh, crypto assets for not much more uh, energetic cost than we do other things on the internet every day. Um, and so when, um, when you're talking about the environmental impact of, of crypto assets, um, usually the lion's share of those impacts uh, are traceable to the less green protocols. That's that I think is the sort of foundational question. Then everything from there depends on how um, you know all the all the members of the all the different actors sort of within the crypto ecosystem, how they are managing their own impacts. And so it goes from the uh, the miners uh, who are minting the the assets in the proof of work um, setting. You know there are now. Um, huge uh, uh, sort of corporate pools of, you know, thousands of computers uh, sort of churning out answers to these cryptographic problems uh, 24-7. Um, you know, there are uh, exchanges like, like Coinbase that take those assets and sort of give consumers a, a way to trade uh, to trade them. Uh, and many other uh, entities uh, sort of innovating in the space, developing, uh, you know, apps that run on these uh, crypto networks. We have to start somewhere, and I think Coinbase is a good place to start, but we can just talk about exchanges more generally, which is in terms of taking responsibility. While it, it may seem the easiest place to place the sustainable responsibilities on the miners, that might not always be, um, they might not be willing to do that. So from your perspective, how do you deal with the challenge of uh, the environmental impact, specifically the energy impact? And I think it was like Nick Grossman from Union Square Ventures who talked about crypto as energy as an asset. So we'll always be tied to this point source problem, although if we had a fully renewable grid, then there would be no discussion. And we can also talk about how, uh, I think eventually we'll hopefully talk about how crypto can be an asset to turning on even more renewables into the existing grid. But from um, going back to the original question, as an exchange, how do you think about solving the problem of the environmental footprint, whose responsibility it is, what kind of actions individuals should take on uh, um, throughout the entire life cycle? To be perfectly candid, I... I'm not convinced that the starting point is any different than any other uh, you know, sort of corporate actor, right? Um, you know, you your business, and you have, uh, in most instances, you have some physical location from from which your your employees work. You, you know, if you're an Amazon or um, or a Microsoft, you may have physical supply chains where you know products go from point A to point B, and trucks and planes and so forth to get them there, and emissions associated with all of that. Um, but you know, if you're um, crypto exchange or a gaming studio or um, you know any other software company, it, it might very well be that you know it's the extent that in the pandemic, for example, your uh, employees are all working from home. Um, we'll put work from home uh, impacts aside for a moment. The impacts really just trace to your data center usage, right? I mean, they, you know, you have electrical consumption for uh, you know for your employees doing their work, and you know to the extent that you're hosting exchange or um, a gaming platform or, um, you know, things of that nature, um, you're either uh, uh, running a data center yourself, like Google, Google does, or, uh, you know, you're, you're purchasing time uh, from something like Amazon AWS, right? And, you know, the, the interesting, you know, so a, a company, um, you know, like a Coinbase uh, or any uh, uh, sort of principally uh, 
kind of internet-based company, uh, you know, lacking physical supply chains for the most part, you know, they, they're measuring their scopes two, I mean, they should measure their scope one, two, and three, but their scope two is um, is very important. And, you know, and you'd be surprised how little uh, or how small the scope uh, two um, footprint for some of these companies. Um, and I've done this work with, with a number of, of, of similar uh, uh, entities when I, when I was counsel, uh, not embedded as I was uh, with Coinbase. I, you know, very quickly you realize that, you know, if there's a if there's a climate impact problem associated with, uh, in the public's mind, especially with your industry, um, you know, taking the normal steps uh, that a company takes, uh, you know, to assess its its, uh, its emissions and develop some mitigation strategy, um, it, it can't end there because, you know, in the case of, of crypto, the problem really is the mining. It is the it's an ecosystem problem, right? It's it's the fact that the very technology itself uh, is energy intensive. Uh, and because the grid is um, not yet, hasn't yet transitioned enough to renewables, you know, that means there's a carbon intensity problem. And so, you know, then you get to um, how every member of that uh, technology ecosystem uh, needs to grapple with it, right? Because if you're profiting off of the trades of, um, you know, a very dirty asset, as arguably Bitcoin historically has been, or if you are um, planning to utilize, um, you know, uh, uh, carbon intensive network. Uh, you're sort of developing distributed apps for for such a network. You're benefiting from an infrastructure that is, uh, you know, potentially dirty. You know, the the interesting question to my mind um, was and is, you know, what is, uh, you know, what's the responsibility of that, uh, you know, sort of that player in the ecosystem that might not itself be be the miner, but whose um, direct emissions or um, scope to indirect emissions are small. Yeah. And if we get nerdy for a second, for people who are not familiar with the greenhouse gas protocol, so scope two is indirect emissions. Most often it's associated with electricity usage. The electricity usage of Coinbase or any exchange would be, you know, what powers their website, not necessarily what powers their, um, the way that the assets are created themselves. I do wonder though, uh, and I, I haven't dug into this personally, if if you could consider the miners' energy uses as scope three, category three, you know, fuel and energy not related to uh, scope one or two, but I think that's a discussion for another time, and I want to park that. After the break, Jonathan and I get into the history and irony of libertarians educating DC on crypto-focused legislation, and what Jonathan is looking forward to regarding the intersection of climate and crypto technology and policy. But first, a quick word from Climate People. Season three of the Net Zero Life is powered by Climate People. Climate People is a technology recruiting firm dedicated to decarbonizing the economy through placing mission-driven talent into climate tech careers. We focus on data, software, product, and user experience recruitment across all climate sectors. Whether you're a job seeker looking to use your skills for good or a hiring manager looking to build out your team of mission-driven engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. 
so you have all these players and I'm curious based off of your experience, if there's an appetite to go then you, you uh, purchase power purchase agreements, PPAs, or basically be a catalyst for new renewable energy generation. You mentioned Amazon and Microsoft and Google, you know, with the data centers, they are the largest, as I understand, the largest private um, procurers of renewable energy. And so is there an appetite for that in the crypto world as well? Is it coming from, from the miner side, the exchange side, um, maybe the user or the owner, I should say, of the, of the asset class? So, I, you know, I guess I'll, my response to that, just to start, is that, you know, we have to remember how, um, uh, how young the crypto industry actually is, right? And so, you know, I, I think it took Apple something like, you know, five years or so, you know, forgive me, Apple, if I'm wrong about that, to put together their sort of ESG framework. You know, um, most of these companies um, are a few years old, but only very recently have, uh, you know, they received the kind of funding and gotten the kind of traction, um, you know, that lets, you know, a tech company uh, do interesting collateral things like um, pay attention to its carbon footprint, right? And so, well, I think that we don't, just as a global matter, have the luxury of time. Uh, you know, the first step really is uh, having each one of these players sort of attend to their own their own footprints to just go through a measurement exercise, right? Um, you know, the the um, you know there are um, creative steps I think that all players can take. Um, and I am a big fan of, um, you know, sort of not allowing any, uh, uh, you know, sort of crypto uh, kind of market actor to um, sort of suggest that it's not their problem. But, you know, it, it's also fair to say that reductions are the most important step and the miners are, you know, best positioned uh, to take steps to um, uh, to reduce their, uh, you know, their electrical consumption and, and carbon impacts. And they can do that in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, it, it's... It, it's been well reported. Um, the uh, the sort of climate advocates who I'm very sympathetic to uh, don't really believe that the uh, that the mining community uh, you know is serious in uh, you know in you know its uh, its effort to be more sustainable. And the mining community thinks that having talked to a bunch of them, that um, you know they can't ever do anything right. And and you know they're they're really exciting new development. They're exciting new um, innovation is um, you know being treated. Uh, much differently than any uh, uh, kind of legacy uh, industry is treated, and that's correct. There's a double standard, right? You know, if you look at you know Bitcoin, um, just take just take Bitcoin because it's the you know sort of uh, most well known and um, most challenging of the uh, protocols from an environmental perspective. Um, you know, I think the uh, energy consumption last year was um, what like maybe 138 terawatts. If you look at the you know these other end use of alternatives. So the New York Times wants to compare that to the energy consumption of, you know, um, small European nations and so forth. And, and th those those comparisons are not incorrect, um, you know, but it just doesn't get you very far because if you look at, um, you know, domestic air conditioning or um, tumble dryers or the implied electricity consumption of um, sort of uh, aviation transport, I mean, even if I could be getting these numbers um uh, I'm wrong, but I, I feel like it was something like 4,000 terawatt hours, something equivalent to that, right? You know, the, you, you're, it's many orders of magnitude um, uh, more uh, carbon intensive, more energy intensive uh, as you go through all of these different um, kind of end use comparison points. Uh, and so the question is what to do with that, right? The, the, it really does boil down in the end to a, um, uh, an interesting social question, a social debate about the utility of this sort of technology in comparison to legacy industries, right? Um, and I think that, 
you know, it's it, it's not obvious to me that those um, that that debate um, has been adequately flushed out. It's not obvious to me that even if it were, you know, the the, the different folks on the spectrum, you know, would find would come to a sort of meeting of the minds. But the reality is that that miners can do a lot of interesting things. They can buy um, sort of on a regular basis more efficient um, mining rigs. They can get better computers with more efficient graphics cards. They can um, engage in load shifting, right? So you know they can um, run their uh, their mining ops uh, more intensively um, during off peak hours, right? Um, they can relocate their ops, uh, co-locate them, for example, um, you know with uh, renewable gens that, uh, and, you know, sort of do it because, you, uh, you know, as you know, well, the, you, you lose the most power is to the transmission lines, right? And so if you can, you know, locate your Bitcoin mine next to your solar farm and you're, you know, sure you're behind the meter, as they say, um, you know, there are, um, uh, a lot of efficiency, efficiencies to be gained, you know, the miners as, you know, has, uh, been happening, they can be sort of aggressively, transitioning towards renewables um, and, um, you know, sort of for swearing uh, coal power or even natural gas power um, generating capacity. All, you know, all these steps will do an awful lot more uh, in the short term, you know, to drive the energy transition. And, you know, not for nothing today with China's ban last year uh, of crypto mining, I believe that the United States is the uh, has the largest share of Bitcoin mining in the world, something like um, like thirty eight percent of the hash rate of the hash share, um, and which basically means that what we do on um, grid uh, grid modernization, um, you know, energy transition, you know, just has a very direct relationship to how damaging the the crypto mining activities are. I, I should I should pause and let you jump back in, but I'll say one more thing. The you know there are a lot of Reactions to the uh, the president's executive order, uh, recent executive order on um, uh, on crypto assets and the SEC's um, proposed rule, climate change uh, impacts and greenhouse gas reporting. But you know, it's it's really interesting. You look at the Bitcoin miners uh, who have already been pushing towards renewable use. You know, they're super excited about these transparency efforts, right? It's, it's only those uh, those operations that you know haven't done that, you know, who are afraid of it. And that's as it should be. And it, uh, you know, cause for some optimism. I think that, you know, you mentioned the miners and this feeling of like, you know, why are you singling us out, the double standard? I, you know, I think people in the oil and gas industry feel the same way, obviously for different reasons, but but it's this idea of, are we like singling individuals and saying, you are bad, we're cutting you out, as opposed to like, hey, we're going to have this conversation, we're going to tackle this problem together. And I think there's actually a lot to learn from a climate standpoint, a climate activism standpoint in particular, from the crypto community. And I, I was just doing my research, I was reflecting on how unbelievably impressive it is that the crypto, the people who are so hype on crypto have convinced the rest of the world that you need to pay attention to us. And, and sometimes that paying attention is like, you're, you know, you, your industry is awful. Um, and sometimes that tension is like, wow, you're going to change, you know, DeFi, you're going to change the way that we that we do the entire uh, financial system. But the fact is that they're an incredibly organized community that have a single goal and are pushing it. And so the, one of the things that I was wondering is what can the climate community learn or take inspiration from, from the crypto community in terms of organization around activism, around having a very single goal, right? Because climate is kind of more of a horizontal idea versus crypto. Maybe, I mean, some people probably argue with me, it will be it's like more of a vertical space, right? Like we're going to tackle this thing, although there are multiple applications. Interesting question. You know, I'll just start by saying that I, 
you know, I came to crypto with a certain amount of skepticism because I didn't understand in hindsight uh, enough about the technology because in addition, the folks who are really passionate about crypto, um, I think could be characterized as techno optimists, right? I mean, they, they don't know precisely, um, you know, how it is that um, what they're building will solve the critical problem of the age, but they have faith, right? You know, and, and I love that, right? And it also, I think is, you know, it really is not fair to, the climate issues are so pressing, right? That we have to be very careful about, um, you know, sort of cutting, cutting any industry area slack, right? Um, action is, uh, is urgently needed in every space. And, um, and, that, and that's, that's just a fact. But it isn't the crypto community's fault that all these legacy energy industries used up all the headroom in the atmosphere, right, for decades to centuries, right? Most crypto companies can't trace their, um, uh, you know, their uh, company or corporate history past like 2017, right? It's, it's really amazing. And, you know, when you think about the organization of the space, you know, it's doubly amazing because this is a decentralized community, a community that believes in decentralization, that objects to, um, you know, top-down, uh, you know, control. And you know, if you just take, you know, without uh, getting anybody yelling at me from Coinbase about my NDA, if you just take what was um, what was accomplished, uh, you know, midsummer last year, in the midst of the infrastructure bill and the uh, the addition of these sort of crypto tax reporting provisions, what the amazing people in the um, sort of Coinbase policy shop were able to accomplish in an extraordinarily short time with a, um, you know, sort of very independent and sort of libertarian oriented um, sort of grassroots community uh, to go to DC and try to educate everyone all at once about, uh, as we were talking about earlier, you know, maybe don't tax the, the more environmentally conscious and sound protocols more than the dirty ones, for example, that just doesn't make sense of using a climate argument, you know, maybe don't impose uh, reporting requirements, uh, you know, that would be unimplementable as a sort of technology matter, just because, you know, it's very difficult to understand, difficult for me, difficult for policymakers, difficult for their staff to understand, um, and very easy for people in the, uh, these technology communities uh, to get exasperated quickly, right? I mean, I would be exasperated if I were them, knowing with such certainty that what you're being asked to do can't be done, certainly not without radical restructuring of either the tack of the operations. And to go to DC and, you know, just be heard the way they were heard. But what that tells you is what the crypto community decides to do, but they decide to make a priority for them, right? I mean, they might not accomplish the objective, right? Because, you know, um, it's a push and pull of, of uh, you know, interest on both sides. Um, but they'll make a splash. And, uh, you know, and sometimes that's all that's required, right? So, you know, I don't know in the end if, uh, and I'll say it just like that, I don't know in the end if, uh, you know, the advocacy associated with the infrastructure bill achieved everything they wanted to achieve. On the other hand, you know, a lot of, you um, uh, you know, friends of mine that, uh, you know, in the Beltway now know a lot more about crypto and, you know, these kind of related collateral um, tech and policy issues than they did before. And that will serve them well as we move on to the next issue. And, you know, it, it's also worth noting, this is relevant to the climate question too, as you see in lots of regulatory domains, you know, what we here in the United States of America do um, with respect to climate and crypto and tax, uh, you know, there there's a great risk of regulatory arbitrage, right? So, you know, it's what we don't want to do 
uh, you know, is apply a very rough, you know, tool. You don't want to take a club to an issue that requires a scalpel um, because people are just going to sort of head off to some jurisdiction that doesn't, you know, care much about regulation at all. That's a kind of a net negative, right? You know, for, for the U.S. to be um, uh, sort of so active in the um, proof of work mining space uh, is a call to action either to shift to um, uh, less energy intensive protocols um, or uh, to drive the energy transition more quickly, which a lot of the Bitcoin um, uh, miners claim to be doing in interesting ways. Um, it is not, uh, I think, personally, you know, a reason to talk about just outright bans of, of uh, even technology that um, we may object to because it doesn't work or very effectively. Right. I was, I still might be, am on record for saying I am a crypto bear on this podcast uh, in season one. But I'll say after spending way more hours than I ever have researching it for this podcast, I do feel a little bit differently. And I might have a bit of recency bias because I just finished Ron Chernow's biography of John D. Rockefeller, which was a slog. But it feels a little bit like the beginning of the oil industry, which is, you know, we have this asset, oil. We're not really sure how to use it. Um, we think, you know, like if we look back at to like, like the advent of uh, of oil and how we how we used it, you know, it was mostly the, the gasoline that we use today was considered waste, right? They just kind of let that go. And so it, it does, it feels like how we kind of the same beginning and maybe that's not like a great parallel to draw. So all that to say, for the future of both the application of crypto and the, in the intersection uh, of climate then they're in, what are you excited about? What's happening? What, um, you know, you and I have spoken about um, the Crypto Climate Accord previously. I'd love to hear kind of like what you're paying attention to and what you think others might want to pay attention to as well. You bet. So mentioning Rockefeller is, is, um, is pretty interesting because, you know, of course, Rockefeller you know, is, is standard oil. And why, why do we call it standard oil? Because, you know, Rockefeller was responsible for a lot of standardization um, exercises that, well, they're fast forward, there might be lots of negative climate impacts resulting from that. But, you know, this oil, they didn't have this resource, they didn't know how to fully um, utilize and deploy. Um, you know, there are huge efficiencies by, you know, um, by Rockefeller's efforts to um, to standardize this space. Um, we could talk for an hour just about that. Super interesting. Um, you know, we need that in the crypto climate space too. Even in the, you know, about, so I've been, I've been sort of digging into this space for about a year, not a long time, right? Um, um, much more intensively in the, sec, in the um, sort of second half of that time. Um, and really it's only in the last um, two, three months that we've really seen some of the most exciting developments since, since COP26. Right. And I don't know that the timing has all that much to do with COP26, but, you know, you have so the, the crypto climate accord. I don't remember the exact date, but it was sort of like spring, uh, spring of 21, uh, I believe. And, uh, you know, they started out with, um, you know, a, uh, sort of an inaugural set of, uh, of signatories. And, you know, it's, it's rapidly scaled to um, many if not most of the crypto ecosystems or 250 companies now, I mean, there are tons of tons of little players, but, you know, 250 of the sort of largest major uh, players in the space is huge. You know, it, the, the crypto climate accord for those that don't know um, is an inspired effort, not super aggressive because if you're too aggressive, then, you know, people wouldn't, wouldn't sign up. The idea is to, you know, um, entice people to get on board and then, um, you know, over time, maybe ratchet up the, the commitments, but the, to start, the crypto signatories uh, commit, I believe it was by 2030, you know, to be net zero for scope two. 
right? And, you know, so a lot of, um, you know, some climate folks might look at that and say, well, just scope two, that's, that's, uh, that's weak. But the reality is that most of the emissions are associated with electricity use. And, you know, while you can, you can talk about sort of interesting questions about, uh, you know, about scope three, you know, sort of how to deal with crypto, uh, crypto assets on your balance sheet and so forth. And, you know, we've talked about that, you know, they were, they were right. They targeted it in the right way. In 2030, while not, uh, you know, as immediate as perhaps some would want, uh, it's a full decade earlier than the Amazon climate pledge, uh, two decades before Paris, um, you know, and to the extent that they, uh, you know, companies comply, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge advance. And then they, they folded up some of the founders, um, uh, kind of RMI and others, uh, back in December with a really great uh, uh, analytic piece uh, seeking to provide some guidance, you know, sort of a supplement to the GC protocol for the um, crypto uh, community. How do crypto uh, uh, specific entities measure their carbon footprints? And, you know, um, there's a huge amount of overlap with any any ordinary company, but it's helpful because what it does is it gives um, players in that space uh, something that doesn't uh, I mean, if you start talking about um, emissions associated with your, um, you know, with your trucks and your planes, then they tune out, right? And so, you know, what what that does, what that guidance document does, is it gives you know miners guidance on how to uh, how to examine their uh, their scope too. So, should they measure, you know, based upon the consequences? Is there a consequentialist model? In other words, are they are they having a net uh, effect on the local grid uh, that's positive or negative? Or um, you know you also analyze it simply by averaging the consumption based upon their location, right? And and that you know it, it's not rocket science, but you know I, I've talked to a lot of people in the space, and you know they felt really was really helpful. You know th- this guidance also uh, helps entities like exchanges think through what their um, reporting responsibilities ought to be with respect to crypto that they trade and hold on their balance sheet. And you know um, you know there's some uh, interpretive wiggle room, but the Bottom line is you can't simply say that because you hold crypto on your balance sheet, you transact in crypto um, and you didn't mind it, somehow it doesn't exist to you, right? You, there is an energetic cost associated with the transactions and you have to have to account for it. Um, you know, those developments are great. It's standardization. Um, on top of that, uh, huge uh, activity on the part of, you know, these uh, kind of pro- pro-climate crypto infrastructure companies and app developers uh, trying to tokenize carbon, uh, trying to figure out how to um, uh, you know, make the blockchain more efficient. Uh, you know, I could probably talk on and on, but I'll run out of time. <laughs> no, you're good. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm like so excited uh, that you haven't mentioned, but I think was about to come up, is this idea of using blockchain to trace supply chains. Um, because it's something that, especially for me, being in the carbon accounting world, spending so much time trying to figure out whose responsibility is what and how do we count it and the double counting issue and all this stuff, the uh, decentralized uh, DLT, I can't even remember what it stands for right now, ledger tracking or something along those Technology, lines. Technology, with- distributed ledger tech. Yeah. Techno- distributed ledger tech. Thank you. Um, it's super exciting. And it, I, I mean, it's really, it's reading those pieces that like RMI is coming out with the whole the group from Watt Time was another person that we Gavin McCormick founder of Watt Time um, is coming out is is, is is part of season three for the Net Zero Life as well and they contributed to Climate Accord it really is so exciting um, we are running out of time Jonathan thank you so much it has been incredible I've got one question one more question for you and then uh, I promise I'll let you go which is is there is there any book podcast blog 
or any other form of uh, media that has shaped the way you think about climate. Um, any like it can be related to crypto or not. But I'm super curious if there's a, a specific author that has helped shift your frame of reference. You mean outside of the Net Zero podcast? <laughs> Everyone says that. Uh, I, I think it's a compliment, but outside of the Net Zero Life podcast. It's, it, it's just a stalling tactic, right? As they review yeah, everything yeah. they've read. And, and, you know, so I have to filter out all the, um, you know, kind of young adult fiction that I read with my daughter and things like that, right? Um, um, Ender's so, Game is totally fair game. <laughs> you know, to be honest, um, you know, it's, it's one of the kind of weird features of our, um, you know, kind of um, current information marketplace. I, I, you know, I feel inundated in information. Most of it isn't as high quality as I want it to be, right? And so the challenge is not at least for me, it's not, um, you know, kind of navigate my way to the, you know, this sort of one seminal piece or the thing that provides me all the inspiration that I need to get up in the morning, but rather just how to process and digest all of the, uh, you know, all of the information data that's out there, you know, and what I find, you know, sort of super helpful. I mean, in the crypto space, you know, I, I honestly just rely on some of the, the rock stars, both at Coinbase and, you know, in lots of other uh, companies that, you know, where we are trying to forge partnerships or, you know, collaborations. And, you know, in this, you know, sort of social media um, style sort of way, just kind of take a poll. What, are, what was exciting for you and end up um, sort of synthetically creating this um, kind of, you know, patchwork of, of you know, of, of cool stuff. I mean, I, I'm, I'm uh, so I guess I can't, I can't point to a single blog. I have to think about it. Yeah. That's all good. We'll come back to it. It'll be the first question I ask you when we do our second episode together. <laughs> that. I mean, you know, the, the reality is that, Blogs, um, big long books about sustainability. I read them and I get excited, and then I start to feel impatient, antsy, and I want to get to it. Do you ever feel that? I mean, you know, it's it, they're often um, roadmaps for action. They're instructive and interesting, but most of us need to just need to understand the underlying technology better than we do, and we need to um, kind of dig into the details, like under the hood. Uh, in the methodologies for carbon accounting, uh, understand the um, the carbon markets better. I mean, when, you know, I'll, I'll sort of leave you with the with with the following point, right? There are um, this there's this proliferation of sort of cool, you know, sort of crypto companies looking at the carbon markets, figuring how to tokenize carbon. Um, you know, they're they're just sort of alive with all of the potential that you know a distributed ledger um, offers. Uh, you know, for traceability, uh, you know, validate the providence of, of credit, you know, um, increase the, the, the quality, you know, price information can be more widely distributed, you know, but in many instances, you know, I, I dig deep and, I, and I'm just not sure the underlying credits that they're talking about tokenizing are high quality to start with. Um, and so then it's all for not, right? Garbage in, garbage out. And, and so, you know, um, I will definitely figure out what you know, sort of nifty book or, or article or podcast, I can, you know, cite to sound smart. But what I really think folks need to do, you know, is uh, just roll up their sleeves and, and, and try to just understand uh, how these protocols operate, however hard that is, uh, understand how the carbon markets actually function, even though you're not a broker or a buyer, you're, you know, sort of a policy person or a, or a lawyer or, you know, whatever else. Um, you know, that, that, in my judgment, that takes you a lot farther. Mm, cheers to that. I think it's a great place to stop. Jonathan, thank you so much. More to come. Thanks again to Jonathan for joining us today. You can follow his work or connect with him via LinkedIn, Jonathan Rakoff, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, 
which I should know how to spell because my name's included in there, R-A-C-K-O-F-F, Jonathan Rakoff. You can get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Lovett, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. If you like what you hear, which I hope you do, and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.